Welcome back to the Twin Geekcast, your independent resource for film in the Northwest. I've just got my Corona antibody shot, so I'm um, possibly infected. We'll find out. See, it's the only way to know. I'm not infected, or at least we can't confirm I'm infected because I've never had a test. You either are or you're not infected. Schrodinger's coronavirus? Mm Mm-hmm. Um... So our message today is we want to release the Ambersons cut because that is the news of the day. Every uh, old film that was slightly bad is going to get a new cut from its director. So was Orson Welles coming back to recut the film then? I believe so. Um, I believe he'll be joining uh, Detective Comics and uh, they're going to go through and fund his next picture on HBO Max. Cool wonder if he'll get to finish his uh, Don Quixote or if that's ever just going to sit in purgatory. It's weird when you think about the, what was the um, Terry Gilliam Don Quixote that everyone waited for for years yeah. and it just came out? The, the man who killed Don Quixote and, it, and he tried making it like two different times. Like there was the, the, th- the project when he was working on it in the 90s, but then it finally came out like a couple years ago. And similarly to, I think it was the same year. The other side of the wind came out. Yeah, it was. And just zero fanfare. Nobody cared. Nothing happened at all. Like I, I think I had it, I had it on once, and no opinion. I nothing. It just washed over me after years of. Yeah, we should get this one, and so many actor changes, script changes. Um, mm-hmm. I I really don't think you want what you what people say they want when they say they want the Snyder cut. I don't think it's really what they're thinking. Uh, you know, sometimes we get things like, you know, I mentioned The Other Side of the Wind just now, and God, what a revelation that was. Our, <laughs> our whole podcast is basically founded off of that coming out at the same time. What was that number three? I think that was episode three. That's the best exception I could think of, of like a lost film that's been revived. Uh, but I mean, Touch of Evil got a, a recut in the 90s, uh, you know, so there's that. Metropolis got its uh, restoration in the past five years or so. We got that uh the, the lost footage. That's the thing that when people say, you know, we make jokes about the Magnificent Ambersons and Eric von Stroheim's greed and such, these lost masterpieces, but it's happened. You know, Metropolis, another 50 minutes of the movie was found in, uh, you know, South America and they added it back in. I think that's the thing is that we're talking about films like Metropolis and Touch of Evil and then it's like a. Uh, Zack Snyder's yeah. Justice League and the Batman vs. Superman movies. Uh, which one's getting remade? I'm... You're, you're right. We really shouldn't be talking about those movies in the same sentence. I know. It's kind of like a... Well, the bar is just so low that this is the big movie news of the year. Is that a movie we already have that nobody liked is getting a remake? A recut, yeah. Um, just because there's been so much clamor for it. I, I, I think a lot of it is possibly... Uh, like disingenuous climber yeah. like everyone's just just hyping in on it riding the train just because they they want something to be hyped up about uh but there's also the ardent dc fan base who does i'm sure want to see the the director's original version of it really we should be listening though, to them though they're, they're going to become entitled we're already talking yeah. about suicide squad this is how well, far I mean, it's gone. At the same time, how do you excuse someone like Ridley Scott, who puts out a director's <laughs> cut for every version of his film? Yeah, I don't know if you do. I, I think it's all bad. Um, I I like some of some of the cuts, of course, like the Blade Runner cut, like Final Cut is important, and um, yeah. Apocalypse Now is interesting cuts. Uh, but these we're not talking about Francis Ford Coppola or Ridley Scott. We're talking about Zack Snyder. His last good movie <laughs> I, is like three hundred, like fifteen years ago. You know, in the end, it's. It's mostly harmless. It's yeah. an, I mean, you know, these. Well, what is Justice League if not just a recut of Batman versus <laughs> Superman anyway? Yeah. So, is it not the same story that we already had already? I'm not sure. Yeah, isn't that what we've been complaining about with superhero movies for a long time? So the logical step really is just to literally remake the same movie <laughs> without having to do anything. You guys were complaining about getting the same movie every year. Well, now you get your chance. Yeah. So, again, at the same time, I value something like a, a director's vision being realized, but it's, it's the problem where we come in where it's, like, too much, and at a certain point, like, you know, it's hard to designate still 
which is the official version, you know, and yeah. stuff like, you know, there's cases like Blade Runner where it's like the creative control was taken away. So years later, we are able to give back the cutting power to the director. And, you know, now we have that true vision. But at the same time, you know, we have a million other director's cuts. Like, is the director cut of Alien any worth having? Is the director's cut of... Uh, gladiator any decent either you know do we really need those versions there's also the thing where it might be a lot more than a director's cut like we should probably see how it turns out it might be a completely different movie for all i know yeah uh i guess that's the thing as well but the, the other i think the bigger question in terms of this justice league cut which i can't believe we're spending so much time on is um the the special effects issue and how yeah. much of that is completed because that is an especially pricey thing to work on for a film that is only being released on a streaming service. It's interesting. They gave him like 30 million to complete a, a new cut, which is really unheard of. That's yeah, that's really crazy, but obviously it's going to drive a lot of attention to HBO max. It's a, it's a smart financial move. It is. Yeah. Uh, but never do it again. Yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Is there any other? Uh, I know they they floated ideas of. I saw a David Ayer's Suicide Squad cut would be would be a potential idea, which is even worse, even worse idea. I might stop watching movies. I might join them on their games <laughs> podcast. It might be you each week, just here alone. You, you already are joining them on the games podcast. Oh yeah, traitor! I'll be there next week, but I'm there to defame them. They just don't know it yet. I'm right, there well, to you better. I'm gonna subvert their system. And they're not, they're not even going to see it coming. All right, well, look, for the first time, I'm going to listen in to our games podcast. And if I hear you getting along with those guys, I'm going to be very pissed next week. I'm not even going to listen while I'm on it. I'm going to have earplugs in. And it just I'm just going to talk. With occasional comments. Yeah. <laughs> just go talk for an hour, see if they cut it out. But, uh, yeah, listen to our S&M cast next week. Oh, Sam and Max. I, I have to stop <laughs> calling it SNM in public. That's right. Yeah, I, I was, uh... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> SNM hit the road. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, we, have a, we have a lot of newsy stuff, despite nothing coming out. So we have the Tenet trailer, which we both just watched. Just, just watched. Uh, I know you were averse to watching it because it came out in a, in a Fortnite event, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I try to avoid Fortnite um, as much as I can. Although I did go to a concert, which I guess I'll talk about on the Gamecast. Yeah, that'll be interesting, I guess. But yeah, I, I literally just sat down and watched it because I remembered it was a thing, and that's news. And man, are we desperate for news right now. So yeah. I watched it, and am I, the, am I the only one who thought it looked a lot like Inception again? I think it looks the same. Um, it, yeah. it definitely looks it's... spiritual sequel-ish to me. Well, what opened up like watching it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a Christopher Nolan movie, yeah. all right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I definitely got that feel. It's like it somewhere between Inception, Interstellar, the time going backward, forward. Now it does both. So, mm -hmm. well, there's a little bit that the I think the big gimmick is pulling back and cycling from Memento. Yeah. is is what I got with the time play there, which is the big gimmick of the film, and and that's what we're seeing a lot with these big. Nolan blockbusters post Batman is that there's got to be some big central hook, some kind of convention we're playing with, and he really, really likes to mess with time. Even, as we've seen, even Dunkirk, you you watch yep. it a few times, you realize that the times being layered and scenes are overlapping ones you've already seen, and you don't know like where you are in a timeline. It's it's not quite as convoluted yeah. as Interstellar or uh, Inception, but it's definitely still a gimmick that he's playing with in the film. I, I'm I'm kind of interested now because again it just seems like time is of such in interest like formal interest to Nolan here. I'm I'm surprised that the Batman movies didn't have some kind of gimmick revolving around jumping through timelines and shit. <laughs> Maybe in the in the Snyder cut, uh, <laughs> we have to see if uh, this movie comes out at all because I feel like the rest of the year and even having an Oscars kind of hinges on this movie's success. It's really down to Nolan to pull it off. I'm also interested to see if uh, Robert Pattinson does get like a prolific big budget career because his most successful film is still Twilight. He hasn't he hasn't reached anything that's been bigger than that yet. Monetarily successful. I don't know if we can call that an artistic success by any stretch. Um, I I like. I love his career path after Twilight, though, so uh, I, I much prefer what he's done, and 
and he's taken a different route than a lot of uh, a lot of the people within his generation, where he's he's just been able to do the independent pictures for a while. Yeah, but it, it definitely seems like between this and Batman. the Batman, God, we just can't get away from Batman. This conversation, uh, he just he's going in another completely different direction, almost back to where he was in a way. <laughs> yeah, uh, but obviously, you know. Robert, don't let us dictate your career path. You know, let's see, make that money. Let's see if it has a little bit more nuance. After Joker, I'm I'm feeling like they might play around. And even Harley Quinn, I thought was a really great time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'll I'll be interested to see. Uh, again, you don't want to like try and pressure them to go in a particular direction if this is what he wants. And you know, they both projects look more promising than some of the related projects of, of similar caliber. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been interesting. We'll see how movies even release within a month. Cause, uh, we should find out shortly if, if we are going to get Tenet and, uh, it, it is going to require IMAX release and, uh, he does require the large screens and that's why I like Nolan for the most part. I'm not like a Nolan bro, but I am kind of an IMAX bro. So yeah, that, that definitely seems, and he is your premier IMAX person, unless uh, James Cameron finally finishes <laughs> his next Avatar movie. I think that's probably like three years off again. <laughs> Suddenly, it slipped away from us again. I'm gonna, like, when when was the original, like, original, you know, s- release for the, the sequel announced? It was, because it has been more than ten years <laughs> since the first Avatar. It was like 2013 or 14 we were supposed to get the sequels. Like, they were supposed oh to be back-to-back those years, I believe. Right, it was supposed to be two, three, because there's like six sequels planned yeah. or some <laughs> shit. Like, it's it's really surreal, kind of like remembering the timeline of Avatar sequels and how that's supposed to happen, and nothing has come of it except for, I don't know, does like the Disney Avatar park count as any kind of substantial expansion of the lore? I, I think it shows that it kept requiring more budgets, and it is going to be a huge thing if the others come back, like... I don't know if theaters will ever be in a place that sustain anything like Avengers Endgame again. Like, we should probably lose four or five hundred screens based on what's happened. Yeah, I think that's something definitely that nobody either acknowledges or wants to talk about, is that when things come back, capacity is still going to be at, like, half just to to start. And we're going to lose all these screens. Every independent theater that's not backed by someone should be shut down. Yeah, it's it's going to be a dark time. We've already Ugh. seen a couple of big big uh, theaters with you know huge uh, fans just kind of already fall by the wayside. I think we now. lost Big Picture here, which was in Redmond, I think, uh, or maybe it was downtown. But that was listed on like a top ten most interesting cinemas list, and it's gone. All it took was mm-hmm. COVID. So yeah, it's a uh, it's really sad and. Uh, I'm still I'm, I'm keeping my eye out on stuff from my local theaters and seeing what they need to stay afloat and stay supported. And I'm eagerly awaiting the day that they open up again because God, I'm so tired of sitting in my house. <laughs> I am as well. Um, I'm also starting to see that it's changing how we're making shows. Um, I watched a uh, Mythic Quest. I watched through the whole series the last week. Uh, really good Apple show. Mythic Quest. Yeah. Oh yeah, a- Apple's still doing shows. It's been a while since we talked about their stuff and it's a it's a creation from a charlie day that uh really Mm. really uh funny and it fits into that uh kind of always sunny uh kind of comedy but about game developers oh and and, uh rob mckeller in here so so two of the guys from always sunny yeah so you could feel like it has their construction and comedy dna behind it um and yeah rob uh how do you say it mckellany you said uh Something like that. I'm look. I'm not going to try okay. and pronounce it. Rob McKelleny. Well, he is the game designer. He's like the guru, like a the um, like the Cliff Blazinski. You would say like the epic uh, prototype for Mythic Quest. And he, um, it's very funny just seeing how he interacts with this crew and uh, what this kind of dude bro stands for, making a kind of World of Warcraft game. Um, in their last episode, they did a quarantine thing, so. They're all, like, in Zoom chats like we are, and uh, they're able to play with the screen space of Zoom. And it's an interesting way to create. Speaking of which, uh, I suppose as well, because I saw that they announced that they're going to do a a COVID-related episode on Always Sunny in their next season. I saw that it did make a record or something. It's, like, on its 15th season renewed. 
it's it's something like that. It's gonna get up to Simpsons level <laughs> like uh, run, I'm sure, at some point. That my that's my trouble sometimes with Always Sunny. I love Always Sunny, mm. but like my my interest just tapers off after a bit yeah. because like the the variance doesn't exist. It's a lot of the same location, same kind of stuff, and it's always great. It just becomes. Stale, like I just become numb to it after a bit, so I can only get about seven seasons in before I bail, and I'm like, I gotta do something else. Yeah, I, I highly recommend Mythic Quest, but that's if you're going into Apple. Like, who knows what they're doing? They've had probably the worst brand identity of all the upcoming and current stream I- identities, other than uh, um, QB hasn't done very well either. <laughs> Quibi, Quibi. Yeah. I know... Uh... Isn't Kevin doing? He's he's martyring himself on the Quibi platform by investigating it for us. I think hell of a thing to do with your quarantine. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess there's there's not as much else to do. So yeah, true. Um, Deep diving on Quibi is is not one of the worst things. I guess you could do. Yeah, I, it might be. I, I can't uh, you're, say you're it's right not. Too. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I would say maybe just above. Retreating into alcoholism is where Quibi is at. <laughs> Why not do both? Um, <laughs> there's uh, The Vast of Night, which I had just seen. Um, pretty interesting thing that's taking off on... Uh, it's skipping all of the influences of TV, sci-fi, the last like, 30, 40 years, and going straight into Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. That's, it's so weird that both Orson Welles and Batman have come up like five times on this episode already. And I wonder if it's going to happen again when we get to the movie. Ugh, it probably will. We'll find a way to <laughs> talk about them in French musicals. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I remember reading your review on this one, and you, uh, I was interested because you, you definitely referenced the uh, the Wellesian aspect of it quite a bit. Um, I think it is very close to that. Like, I remember the first days I went into like radio classes in college. I sat down, they put on War of the Worlds, and... It was probably my first exposure. I had seen Citizen Kane long ago, but it was my first other exposure where I really understood who Orson Welles was and what he was about, and that he was kind of like a radio mastermind and bringing that into film. So uh, that gave me perspective. So I I do enjoy that, but it feels very amateurish. The the movie? Yeah, yeah, this movie. Not the broadcast. Not the broadcast (laughs) itself, but this movie about a broadcast that they pick up at a radio station. It's called... um, W-O-T-W, so it's referencing War of the Worlds, even though your call sign has to start with a K if you're west of the Mississippi, so I'm a radio nerd, and I don't like that. Oh, yeah, I thought that was interesting, a little bit of trivia point out there, because I did not know that. Yeah, um, I forget what it is on the east, because I've always lived in the west coast, but yeah, west of Mississippi is always a K. Um, like, we have, like, K-Rock, and, you know, um, all of our stations will be K. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not really into this, um, and the... It's really dumb how they have to do that thing where they over-explain, do the yada yada about, uh, here's what technology will look like in the future, and it's like, oh, we can all wink and nod because we know how it's going to go. That that stuff really annoys me in a movie. Mm, where it's just, like, too obvious, like, like too <laughs> parallel, like, it's, it's like, entirely self-aware, but not aware enough to know that it's self-aware? Yeah, it's like... Uh, the girl will say, two years ago, in the popular mechanics magazine, they said we're going to have telephone TVs in our pockets. I'm like, oh, fuck off. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, it's just bad writing. Yeah, well, to be so on the nose about it, yeah. especially, like, you know, give a little bit of generalization <laughs> of it. And they're like, and the guy's like, no, no, I don't, I don't believe that will ever happen, but cars going in tubes in the tunnels, that's going to be two years from now. I'm like, okay, but you have a lot of benefit of hindsight, and this is really fucking dumb. <laughs> well, was there anything about it that you liked or would recommend? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's all right. I, I like the premise, and I like radio stuff. So uh, just watching her like plug into like the into the sound table there is enough for me to really get off. But I mean, not sexually, but you know. It's... <laughs> yeah, no, all your uh, sexual dalliances we're gonna save for the the film itself. Here we're <laughs> it's <talking> true. About. <laughs> um, any other movies this week? Uh, there was uh, Capone. Oh, yes. I've been... We, you put it off last week because we had so many other things to catch up on since you took a hiatus from us. Uh, but I was excited to hear about this one because it sounds like a dumpster fire. Have you seen Fan Stick before? Uh, no. No. I, I try my best not to watch bad movies, particularly bad movies whose directors disown them. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, 
Other than Sean Baker last week, I think he's the only director to get on Letterbox and give himself a bad review. So, um, yeah, that, that was that brought a little a little bit more attention again. <laughs> I don't know why that I don't know because I guess it was just such a fiasco that it snowballed that that Josh Trank is such a director in in the the zeitgeist, but hasn't made good movies. Have you seen Chronicle? I haven't seen oh, that I either. Oh, I did see. I I saw Chronicle on a bus on the drive <laughs> on my senior trip. Okay. We took a senior trip to a family fun center on on my <laughs> in in senior year of high school and they played Chronicle on the bus. And that was my experience watching it. And that's like a CG Seattle movie, right? Yeah. And it, I know it was written by Max Landis. Look, I'm very interested in Seattle movies, but Seattle movies that are just CG of the city, I could just walk outside and look at the Space Meal. Yeah. You can probably see it from your window. Yeah, I probably could. So, no big deal I, for I'm me. I'm trying to look behind you, but, but right now you've got Montana as your background today. I have, like, branding on the sides that say, like, visit Montana. It's pretty great. It's it's very out of character for you. <laughs> Usually it's, like, Stuber or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is really me. I'm really a travel advocate for Montana. <laughs> really nice. It's It's got mountains. It has sky. I, I like that their branding for Montana is that we have the sky like nobody else yeah. does. <laughs> but what do we have here that's unique? Huh, we could look at the sky. We have we have clean air, no pollution, <laughs> and a very small amount of people we have, versus <laughs> per capita. We have air. Nobody is here. Um, but uh, yeah, Capone. That's that's a movie that came out and uh, kind of came and went already. Yeah, what was it? It's a red box funded <laughs> movie, right? It reminds me of um, what was it? Movie Pass doing Gaudy two years ago. Uh, kind of well, in the same uh, yeah. camp. Well, of course. I mean, it's it's a good it's a similar parallel. People who should not be funding movies and businesses realize that it should be out of you know like dead already are funding like out of vogue gangster films. Yeah. and I think it I think it works because Josh Trank is kind of blacklisted and can't be funded by anyone with real money. So, is he blacklisted because of Fan Four Stick? I don't. I think it's like the outcome of that, and that it's just hard to work with him, and he. he you know, bails on the studios. It's whenever you go against the studios and start making your own decisions, you kind of get yeah. on a list, you know? Um, yeah. Unless, unless you're successful at it. Right. Um, so Josh Trank, still not a good director. I still don't recommend his work. It's harsh, but, uh, I, I really didn't enjoy Capone and it's, uh, you'd think, uh, Tom Hardy shitting himself at least three times in a movie would be entertaining, but, uh, hmm. I, yeah, I, no, I can't say that that's something I want to sign up for. I hear he's method acting, so I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's really shitting himself. But that would be the. I've seen uh, lots of uh, gifs and stuff uh, from the film, little bits of clips here and there, and read people's impressions. But it, yeah, it definitely looks generic, uninteresting, uh, shockingly out of step with the times. Like. I don't know. Do you feel like this at all trying to capitalize off of like Irishman's success? Question mark because we don't know how much it actually made. Oh, uh, it could be. I mean, we don't. Re yeah, Irishman's just a blank area, and I, I don't know. This could have done okay in theaters. Um, it is really interesting. I mean, the idea itself of his um, Al Capone's syphilitic brain kind of inspiring a different take on a gangster where he's already down and out, and at the end of his career. And he doesn't get to do any of the cool shit that people associate with him. Um, that sounds okay, but it's really just a boring movie. Yeah, it's a shame. Well, I'm excited for Josh Trank's Letterbox review of it. I'm sure that'll be much more entertaining. <laughs> and uh, at least we get to see Tom Hardy do some weird shit again. Um, all of his roles have been fairly weird. He's another guy who hasn't followed an obvious path. Right. Uh, do we know what he's going to do next um what's Imagine. tom hardy doing next probably like venom 2 right no but that is happening isn't it yeah uh, venom 2 should be coming um what else mad max the wasteland war party which i haven't heard of is he playing al capone in another movie is he <laughs> where <laughs> there, there's uh, cicero is uh, another thing it says it's in development on imdb okay. and it all it has is his name attached so it's probably not actually a thing that's gonna happen but i just thought it was funny <laughs> okay 
Um, was there any other new movies this week? I think that might be it. Uh, I don't know. You're the one who watches the new movies. What do you What do you expect from me here? Uh, participation. Uh, no, I, I think that's it. All right. Well, then why don't we talk about the old movie we picked to talk about this week? Oh, good. I like old movies. Um, we talked about. We're going to fuck up the pr- pronunciations on everything, aren't we? Uh, you know, I'm just gonna try and avoid all. I, all I know is I can say the title. I can say the director's name. Okay. Uh, but I might be stuck. So we're covering that. Umbrellas of Cherbor. Is that how you're going to say it? Cherbor. Sh- Sh- Look, dude, I thought you were like the the Francophile here, and you were all obsessed with France and everything. You, I thought you had this down. <laughs> you're supposed to be coasting me through this. You're going to mess up the pronunciations with this? I have to watch all the movies and lead you through the French Revolution? Just the French stuff. Just the French stuff. Look, if you're not, like, you know, pining over a Seattle set film, and then the next thing is France. Uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Here we are. Cherbourg. Cherbourg. I know that one, at least. And the director is Jacques Demy. Yes. I can say those um, names. Jacques Demy, famous uh, French director. Something that I would like to highlight most about this one is it's kind of a confluence of old Hollywood style. He liked the Gene Kelly musicals and uh, he liked the he liked lighting. He liked all the techniques that Hollywood was using at that time. France was just all shaky cams and you know they were all handhelds and they were doing more documentary uh, gritty styles. So he kind of finds an intersection here of those two things. And yeah, that's that's the kind of interesting thing I found watching it because it's like the opposite in many ways stylistically from everything else that was going on in the french new wave Mm. it's it's super extravagant almost even more so than those kind of gene kelly mgm hollywood musicals it's like it's it's super candy colored (laughs) he was very inspired by west side story so you could you could feel a lot of that coming through in in the style and the technique here um yeah especially the color coding uh, yeah, the coloring in the lighting in particular, because West Side Story has very colorful lighting, uh, you know, but even then this is like, you know, even more than that, ex- you know, extreme in many ways, because the particular color palette, I think, accentuates the, the, the fabricated nature of it. Yeah. Not not in a bad way, in a, in a very wonderful way. It's beautiful at all times. It it's always looks like something you could touch and feel that has like a sensation to it. Um, every texture seems to provide something. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that more. Um, I think a lot of his technique comes down to him being more on like the left bank side of the filmmakers rather than like the French New Wave. So you have like the French New Wave directors that were all from Cahiers, and then um, which is like Godard and Romer and uh, Truffaut and all of them. Then you have the left mm-hmm. bank like uh, Jacques Demy and of course Agnès Varda and uh, a lot of others that were uh, kind of just operating outside of the gritty realism and they were making more political films um this has a lot to do with like algeria and some of the uh french war that was going on around the time just before this came out yeah that that cultural context was definitely something i was missing a little bit from watching the film and the fact that the war itself is very little impact on the plot yeah uh, right. you know it, it was a little I mean, like a little oh. bit it, it's it's there, but it's more like a it's like a background thing. Like the it's somewhere people the go, of the they leave the film to go to the war, right? Like right, it all the war itself strings. though, it could be a made up war in this film, really. Right, it could. Um, I mean, it could be anything. I mean, he could yeah. he could have to leave for any reason. And I also find that the left bank filmmakers are a lot less literary, so they're not like the critic group, right? Like they're they're more humanitarian. They care more about like a human feeling and emotion, maybe than the than the Cahiers critics who just come from, like, Hitchcock and the Hollywood uh, uh, film school of, like, sensationalism and, you know, uh, film technique, more so. Well, it, it is interesting, then, still, at the same time, that, you know, uh, Demi here is still taking from Hollywood yeah. in in his own way, but just not the, the same filmmakers that of course. Uh, the, the Cahiers <laughs> group were. You know, he's looking more at the, the Stanley Donnans, Gene Kelly's, the... Uh, uh, maybe a little bit of Berkeley, but he's a really fascinating uh, combination. I think of like hardness and softness. I I think uh, everything about his films to me, uh, he's like well known as like a mama's boy, and of course like a uh, an Agnes Varda figure, which is a certain kind of person, right? That fits into her life, and 
there, there's a certain thing like Leigh Bonheur that's like, uh, okay, this is a film full of color and uh, technique, while everyone else is shooting in hard edges and black and white. Like, his film doesn't have very many shadows. Yep, no, I don't think too many going on there. It's it's very lit, and to a point where sometimes I was like, maybe the film is a little <laughs> too desaturated. Like it's it's very brightly lit yeah. at all times, and I, and in in some ways watching, I was like, maybe I want just a little bit more pop in the color. But it, it was never really enough that I was like, <laughs> you know, this is not good. It's very beautiful. Like I said, at, at no times, especially towards the end, I feel like it got really really visually beautiful in the last scene with the the snow and everything going on we'll get back to that i think uh, yeah yeah i just a, wanted to comment on it visually there was this film lola a couple of years before which is uh, interesting because it starts off a jock to me universe uh, much like batman <laughs> god damn it <laughs> much like batman in the snyder cut uh jock to me was already carving out a director's universe with this very first film um and that was all hard edges. He was doing the same thing that his new wave contemporaries were doing. So uh, as a follow-up to that, it's interesting because this brings in a character from the story. Um, what's his name? Uh, Cassard, uh, the guy who, the uh, the money jeweler who wins the uh, Genevieve's oh, heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, the He's the same, guy. same actor. <laughs> uh, I forget the actor's name, but he's the same actor from Lola. And he plays the same character who is a... Uh, uh, kind of hilariously, he's going after another girl who is also occupied within Lola. Uh, Mark mm-hmm. Mark Michel, I think, uh, without the French pronunciation, that's his name. Yeah, no, I, I remember him in the movie now. He was, uh, and that's kind of the interesting thing as well with umbrellas is that it's it's split up into these distinct sections. I did like how, uh, as you kind of said. Uh, you said to me anyway that the film does take those Hollywood sensibilities, but it still grounds it in a more French and humanistic level, mm. where it, like like it's never bombastic like the Hollywood musicals could be, and a lot of that has to do with the the music itself, which is not overly concerned with being uh, abundantly melodic or um, you know lyrically pronounced. It's it's still very conversational. It feels like dialogue, but it's elevated through the music. And and what I found that the film does is on a very raw and you know uh, definitive level, it uses music in, a, in the musical format to accentuate emotion in a dramatic form. Which is again, I think the strive of all musicals. But this is like a. An, an essay point on that because it's constantly all it's it's entirely sung through yeah, the entire film entire uh um jock to me really like singing through um even when it's not sung through in a constant fashion it always advances the plots of his movies so uh different Which from like the hollywood style he'll uh he'll always have a progression uh there will never be a moment of song but that also isn't in the context of the movie yeah, the big issue with a lot of older Hollywood musicals is that there are lots of fluff songs where the the whole plot just stops yeah. so we can sing this one. Even some of the best ones, Singing in the Rain in particular, has a number of stop and sing a song because we don't know how to make this fit into the plot otherwise. Because <laughs> a lot of those older musicals were just, they were pre-written songs that they then had to kind of shove into the, the format. Um and and that always manages to slow things down. But if you can use the music to accentuate the emotionality of a scene and express the character's feelings in a way that, that words often would not, mm. then that's that's the best way you can. And that's the entirety of the film, this entirety of Umbrellas of Shaborg here, is that it's characters expressing their feelings through song, through singing, at all times. I think it's the first musical of all time where it's sung through and the music goes the entire movie. I believe that's true. That might be the case. Uh, there's a lot of them I know from like the 70s yeah, and such, this. but but that's like a good bit later. Like definitely, I can't I can't think of ones in in Hollywood that were prior to this. But also, I don't think that sung through musicals were really a thing <laughs> before then. It was a lot of reviews and, yeah. and such uh, that populated you know uh, the American scene for a long time but a lot of reviews where like the production studios are like we have all these people let's put them together and do a package right but Um, it was it still was usually never sung through sung through like there's usually still little plot setups dialogue stuff there's usually presenters to the reviews too 
and even now in in movies you don't see this format utilized that often the sung through musical is not common on the screen as much even his ones like rochefort that have like it feels like it's being sung through they still stop and have dialogue exchange so so this one's even pretty unique for demi i mean he has some others in the same feeling but uh I think Legrand's score here also takes from like a Hollywood sense of jazz, but it imparts yep, it like it's very jazzy. Yeah, it it has like a two bombastic moments, and that's about it. Like right in the garage, I love those moments. the garage mm-hmm. at the beginning, and then right at the end, it, it kind of builds into crescendos. But other than that, it's very plain and allows the uh, French to to carry a lot of the baggage there. Yeah, those those particularly loud, hot, jazzy moments. There were some highlights of the film for me. I think I could have liked those even more if we had a few more of those. But when those moments, they, they really sang when they came, and I enjoyed those a lot. Uh, also, kind of untraditional musically, there's there's no choreography in the film, which I think is <laughs> yeah. a benefit, actually, uh, because it emphasizes the story more and the characters. But it is, it is definitely uh, out of step, then, with the, the traditional kind of style, and that's why it is... Uh, a little more revolutionary the film is i would say and it's interesting because they're not singing in like a harmony or anything they're not following (laughs) a musical style uh they are going to sing words like they just say no and they're going to sing that out and and, yeah and that's what i meant when i said it's not like melodic necessarily so it wouldn't make sense for them to be dancing because they're doing their right uh, it's kind of about imparting the musical onto like everyday jobs and business too yeah, exactly. It it uses the musical idea in that most basic function in in a super uh, or a superlative way, in that it uses it to emphasize the the emotion. It's not necessarily like, uh, it's not a musical that I would sing along to no. in any capacity. <laughs> it's it's not like that in in any way. Not only but but even like musically, I find it very simple in a lot of the moments, which is again an an intentional aspect because it wants to feel conversational and casual and it wants to to do that to impart the feeling of the music onto the everyday conversation and plight of the characters in a lot of ways i feel like that's all revolutionary and it it does something completely new which i i value but it's also the kind of new thing that does it very well the first time yeah i i definitely think so is there another demi film i i know you talked about uh young girls of roquefort a little bit there but uh, I'm kind of curious as to if there's anything else similar or are they more traditional musically? Um, I think that's a little more traditional, but it's very similar. I think Donkey Skin is also pretty similar, but it's like a, he also has Pied Piper. Those are like his two fairy tales, and uh, those exist outside this like universe that uh, have kind of combi- combined characters. Uh, they always have a sense of optimism, um, like a ro- Rochefort, which I can never pr- pronunciate the right way. Um in that someone gets murdered by like an axe murder and the characters are still <laughs> singing about it. Like with their newspaper up, they'll still be like singing, uh, about the murder that just took place next to them. They don't really care. Uh, so there's that, always, there's always like a huge happiness and sadness to all, to all of them. Yeah. And I think that carries over here as well, that this is a very serious and at times sad, dramatic story, but it is never not like, it doesn't not ever not feel optimistic, I guess, or like exuberant. Because it is so beautifully colored and the music is often fairly upbeat. Uh, but, you know, the story, the, the dramatic part of the story anyway, kicks in about like halfway through more so. where We get a little bit more of the uh, uh, narrative struggle with uh, with Guy's character coming back from the war. Um, my sense of the what the plot line is, is that it's about young lovers who have to come to know what it means to be in love forever. They... They have to find out what forever really means. They have all this idealism when they're together at first. And the mom is saying, of course, no, you can't be with him. You need to get with the guy who already has his career together, knows what he's doing. Uh, Guy's going to have to go to the war, and then you're going to be without him. And you're going to need money because our uh, business is failing. So it is about the umbrella shop, but it's really about Genevieve and uh, coming to terms with like a sadness of what uh, first love really feels like. And... I think all the colors and feeling of the film, it has like the optimism, but then the the uh, impending sadness of first love. Can, can we just talk for a second about how, of course, an umbrella shop is failing financially? Because <laughs> yeah. you're, you're not going to have business every day of the year. 
I mean, I guess it's one of those things where, of course, it's more of a fashion trend thing there, but it's it's an impractical fashion trend at best. Yeah. And... <laughs> um, it's not very good business acumen to, to... It's a very seasonal shop, isn't it? Yeah. It's a... Uh... I, I would I would recommend that they expand their business a little bit. Maybe uh, get some hats. Hats would be good to to increase business a little bit. Um, I think about it a lot. I I think it's most interesting structurally because, like, the whole point of the new wave is to go against like the tradition of quality, which is what France calls like their old films, right? Like all films mm-hmm. that are like based on novels and the French films that were not at all influenced by Hollywood. So. To take someone who's doing the traditional quality without abandoning it, while also taking on the semblance of Hollywood, so we do have a love story, and it is more Hollywood love story here. Well, it is kind of interesting that the French New Wave, even though that its its principle there is to be against Hollywood, is so influenced by Hollywood. <laughs> it's not very, even, yeah. Not even not even just this example, but even like the flagship film, what uh, Breathless, is very noir inspired, is it not? It's an extremely Western film. It, yeah, it feels extremely like a Hollywood noir. And even though it's experimental and uh, against the grain in terms of the actual filmmaking style and structure. Uh, they they can't help but pay homage, of course, and be inspired <laughs> well, by because all, all of those. The, well, that's like really said, the Kaye's guys. That's really the thing is that they found them in Kaye's and they wanted to implant them onto the French industry, going against the traditional quality that the government said they had to do. So, uh, well, actually, the uh, government at that point's like, let's take these critics and let's give them all the money to do what they're seeing being done in America because we could match that, and they mostly did. And then and we kind of got the echo of that with the new Hollywood generation who, yeah. you know, and there was they, no going the, back. the studio handed off to them. And then and then after that, we just now we're at Blockbuster Central for yeah. we, 40 years. We still get years. the complete ramifications of it that we've become more reality and gritty based. Like you can see like the evolution that starts with the new wave and uh, that's permanently affected the, the studio system, I guess. Mm hmm. But but yeah, it is interesting here, and I, I'm glad we picked this film because we have done a poor job of expanding our international palette on <laughs> the podcast here. Right. We've talked about uh, two Kurosawa films, and um, we talked about some spaghetti westerns, I think, and I think there was another Japanese film or uh, some we other... Did, yeah, we did uh, the uh, Korean, we did... Oh yes, we did films. two Korean films back to back. So our our international cinema is very Asia oriented. <laughs> so it was it was good to get over here. <laughs> there are at least five or six other countries out there that we could get to. Right, and we also decided to knock out a musical here because I think the only other musical we've talked about is the Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, how do you feel about? Uh, do you feel like the film really changes after he goes to Algeria? For me, oh, yeah. For me, it becomes a lot paler, like the color diffuses, and there's a lot more whites used in place of like the vibrant reds. And um, well, there's a lot of signaling in the film, I think, based on color. Right. Thinking back, uh, yes, I think uh, I agree with you in terms of the color aspect. It, it was not something that occurred to me at the moment, but that sounds correct. Um, the film, uh, I, I was not entirely moved by it in the beginning because I thought it rushed the relationship aspects. Yeah. Um, that that was kind of like my big thing. I I only watched it for the first time last week, um, and the characters of Genevieve and Guy were not compelling to me out the gate. And it was very it's like it, very vacuous young love. It's like they love each other because they love each other, and uh, maybe that's the point. But yeah, that doesn't endear me to them. Yeah, absolutely. But as it as it went along, and their characters gained more depth and interest, especially on Guy's part, because he had a real. Uh, conflict that you could latch on to with uh, Genevieve leaving with his, you know, not having his child anymore and him having to move on with his life. I thought that was a very compelling, uh, you know, character evolution. And then bringing it all together for the finale there was was a very beautiful and satisfying ending, I thought. But ultimately, I felt like that, that worked. I just wish there was a, a little bit more in the beginning. I wanted a little bit of, like, character nuance for me to latch on to. I think I think, like, the whole idea of the film is, like, let's reduce the entire scale of the musical down to the most basic human conditions. Like, uh, yeah. I think that I think that largely works, but I can see where uh, you wouldn't quite get well, get through. It also that. has to it also has to battle against my personal sensibilities as someone who 
loves extravagant, over-the-top Hollywood musicals. Right. It, it's not <laughs> going to do that, and it doesn't have, like, an extravagance or over-the-top... Uh... So, so I, I do think that there was a little bit of adjustment period where I had to tune myself a little bit more properly. Because the other thing as well is that I had a little bit of... Uh, uh, cultural bias going in because of what everyone has told me about the Umbrellas of Shiborg. I've heard about the Umbrellas of Shiborg for a long, long, long time. It's one of the most beautiful films ever made. It's a great, you know, French musical. It's a wonderful love story. And it's like, it is, but maybe not as much as everyone indicated. <laughs> Just may- maybe not as much. It's one of those cases where it's like, how could a film ever live up to that much hype? I mean, I think it's by far my favorite musical so far. That and, and I can certainly see why, and I think that it's also indicative of a little bit of difference in our taste. But this was this was going to be the easiest sell for me to get you to talk about a musical on the podcast. So I just I went for it. I like that it has the undercurrent that really keeps me interested. Like it's a constant musical. If I want to watch a musical, then that's kind of what I want, and it understands I, that. It kind of seems like you're constantly watching musicals anyway, with your kid running around the house watching frozen for the 50th time yeah i've heard frozen two enough times that um (laughs) that this seems like the perfect love story this this seems so much greater than what's in that um but uh, is this something she gets into well like i even in my review for frozen two what i really liked about it compared to the first one was it moves the plot and all the songs say something that's going to move the action in some way which is really what i want from a musical anyway and this does this Better than any that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, because it, it's all moving the plot yeah. to various degrees. I think I think it does highlight sometimes, like an occasional throwaway line that you could probably cut from the script because you you notice it a bit more when it's sung. Yeah, you might need like a bridge between <laughs> between descriptions here and there that uh, it's it's inserting. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it, it does a again. I think it takes the idea, the core idea of what a musical should do, and and it runs with it, and it does it in a different way that uh, accentuates the the intents of the musical format. Um, I guess, yeah. My only thing about like what you said is that it's less than like a big picture like love stories. I think it's sub- such a subversion on like young love. And I feel like it's pulling so much else against that, that um, it's not about the romantic ideal that everything's going to get together. And uh, um, I love the line, people only die of love in the movies. That's, I I always find that interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, you can say as well that the idea of like boiling down their characters to the very basic sketches of, of young lovers is an intentional decision to make the film about more than this single... Uh, conflict that it's about young lovers everywhere mm. and I, and that's something i i certainly think the film is doing it just like like from a a pure like entertainment like i'm i'm watching the film level uh you know in the beginning i had a harder time getting into the characters because they were sketched so thinly they are until very thin. <laughs> later on yeah i mean even by a- the again, end we don't know much about g or genevieve other than what their position is in the love affair Again, we get more of them, but only through what has happened Barely. to them throughout the course of the film. Like, it, I, and again, I guess it goes back to that kind of Romeo Juliet kind of romance that just being in love is what they love. Like, there's not a specific thing about each other that they love, but there's nothing about them I love either. And and that's I think what I was missing is that I would have, I don't know, I don't know what exactly to say what I wanted from them, but th- there's definitely a disconnect between me and the characters in the beginning. Uh, we we don't find much out about G in the beginning. We find out that he's a garage guy, right? And, yeah. Uh, um, Jock Demi's dad ran a gas station. His mom was a baker. He said like uh, his his favorite smell in the world is like a a croissant and gasoline. So you could kind of like feel that within <laughs> G's character, like. That's how his character feels. Like, it's sweetness, but it's wrapped in, like, gasoline and, uh, like, kind of plain clothes job that's uh, pretty normal um, and very... It, I mean, it might mean something to the French in 1964 that it doesn't mean to us in 2020 right now. Mm-hmm. But... But I did... Yeah. yeah I, I, I... Again, to emphasize, I did really love the movie still. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, you know, not to... You know, that my... Uh, qualms with it you know should weigh that in any way uh the fact that it is your favorite musical makes perfect sense to me of course i see it i see it entirely 
But I do think the film would be a little bit thin if you're just looking at, like, what's actually there, right? Um, right. I, I think it's very interesting when Cassard comes in and it she meets the realities of what her mother always said would come true. Uh, it it always, it really does come true for her. Uh, she does have to abandon her idea of love to uh, go with someone who's practical. And there's, like, a sadness there. But, but there's also a happiness at the end. Like, G sees that this person became happy through a different means, and... And that's okay. As it, like, zooms out, though, we're getting the flashing red lights at the very bottom of the screen. Like, it's telling us, this is a warning. These people shouldn't be together. We need to create distance. Mm-hmm. There, there's definitely, the ending is probably the most satisfying part of the film. And like I said earlier, it's definitely, I think, the most beautiful as well. The snow, uh, I think, is an interesting bookmark on the film because it opens, in the opening titles open with the rain pouring down. Yeah. And so that's an interesting kind of uh, thematic evolution. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's that, and, and the film is seasonal in a way as well because you have the constant dates being put up on the screen with the months indicating where we are in the timeline and such. Yeah, there's three um, different time sections. There's the before, then there's ways away at war, and there's four years later. Right, and so the the ending uh, it really comes around, and I think it uh, the the ending also goes in a way that I think a Hollywood movie would not. That oh, these yeah. <laughs> characters grew, they grew apart. They, you when know, had families. That yeah, families, and one of whom, you know, Genevieve's kid being Guy's, but you know him not being a part of that. Oh, yeah. and, and that was a heartbreaking thing as well. Like when she asked him at the gas station there after they, you know, they met again that if he wanted to see the kid, and it's like no, no, yeah. and and I just imagined I put myself in his shoes for a second. I'm like God, just knowing that the kid is there and that, that you had a kid that's oh now you have to live with that for the rest of your life knowing that you have a kid somewhere and me- meeting them would just be the worst it'd be the hardest thing because you'd never stop thinking about them and there's and you could never be with them there's a weird tension too like his his new wife has just walked out of the building like we don't know where she is and it's like a weird thing mm-hmm. like okay i'm already pretty much in this new life and it you know there's not much distance between that and her pulling up to the gas station. So, Right, but the film doesn't disparage either character no. for growing apart or like leading these new lives. And they're both very happy in their in their lives. And I don't think they regret anything. It's just, it, I think it showcases in a very beautiful way how life goes on and people can, uh, can grow and, and admire someone they used to be with without longing for that necessarily. How do you Which feel? Is, I think something that Americans definitely struggle with a bit more. And Catherine Deneuve, one of my favorite actresses, maybe my favorite actress, is uh, I think she's so beautiful in this. Uh, uh, interesting choices like pulling her hair back and just putting her face forward in the film. She said that Agnes Varda came in and just like grabbed her hair and she's like she just struggled it back and I didn't know who this woman <laughs> was. And, uh, she looks so gorgeous in it. I don't think anyone's ever looked better in a musical. She's she's definitely gorgeous. I can't uh, disagree with you there. And I know she's in uh, Young Girls of Rookford as well. Yeah, Would you her, recommend that one? Her sister's me? in this. Well, definitely, yeah, yeah. You might even like it more. It's more structured like a Hollywood musical, Maybe. more Gene Kelly. I was going to say Gene Kelly's in it, so yeah. that's automatically some bonus points. I think you'll almost automatically enjoy it more because it's more fashion to what you're used to, I think. Yeah, maybe so, but that's not, again, not to say that I did not appreciate or admire this. I thought it was very wonderful, and uh, the the fact that it is so much more French in its identity yeah, right. is is fantastic because you don't want uh, people to just copy American films and American film styles. Um, yeah, I'm not as experienced with musicals outside of America in general, but I know like there's a, of course a huge market in in India for them. Uh, yeah. And but this is this is always the next stopping point after you hit American musicals, as everyone talks about the films of. Jacques Demy and Umbrellas of Chiborg is always the main highlight, and it's easy to see why. I I think so as well, and I just love the French language. Of course, it's my favorite language that I can't pronounce any words. For. I was gonna say, <laughs> I just like this whole this whole time I'm just listening. I'm like, <laughs> I just love. You say how, you like French. <laughs> I love how everything sounds and how things look, and I love that it looks French. And um, of course, it was criticized a lot for having, you know, really no hard edges like. Pauline Kale is like it. It really takes any masculinity and it sucks it right out of the picture. Um, and you, I kind of agree with that. I think it. I think there's a softness to Umbrella. I suppose, but like mas- 
masculinity is such a weird word yeah. to like describe in a disparaging way. Is there a masculine element to, to Gene Kelly films? Uh, she called it charmingly attenuated, which is it just means its masculinity was reduced. She didn't say masculinity, but she just said like oh, it's okay. like spread thin, attenuated okay, so, was her word. Okay, well, and that's a word that most people wouldn't understand. <laughs> that's a Pauline Kale word. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Um, I I don't really feel that way. I don't feel like it needs to be stronger, more masculine. No. But that well, why, why does something have to be masculine to begin? Like again, it, it, I guess it goes back also in a twenty twenty mindset. We don't view that as like an insulting yeah. term or anything like right. something doesn't need masculinity to be you know important or strong or good that's a very antiquated way of thinking yeah i think i think that's an attentuated way of thinking <laughs> i'm never <laughs> going to use that word again um no i mean what why would you what use would you have for <laughs> nobody's going to know what you're talking about if you use that in casual conversation attentuated Having been reduced in force, the factor of virility or value, ah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I feel like Jock to me always had that kind of signpost, like on his films, uh, that he was disowned by the other French because he didn't have that hardness and that objective truth that uh, Kale was looking for. So uh, I feel like this is a very subjective, open film and very unique. Um, yeah, I think I, I generally agree. I think it would be hard to dislike the film yeah. anyway like even me where, I, where i'm bordering on like a uh you know i didn't like the characters as much or uh you know it didn't have any melodies to hook into or, or it wasn't bombastic like a hollywood musical like i'm i'm probably on the like that's probably the extreme end of disliking the film and i still found it wonderful yeah um something we talked about i think it's just the perfect wallpaper film um, you can oh, put yeah. it on at a party um I think even Kale may have said, like, in a review, like, you should just project it into a room of hipsters and they just watch it. Uh, that's that's an idea that I've I've long been kind of concentrating and thinking about. Uh, right now, though, I use a lot of, like, I, I, I do do that. I do put on movies for the background for yeah. whenever people come by and visit. But what I primarily use are, are silent films because silent films have a, a very good visual quality, but they also have the, the musical element that's not... Uh, attention uh, grabbing like you know your people aren't going to get distracted watching it you can still hold a conversation and let your eyes kind of drift to the screen and I think that works as well here because it is it, because the, the nothing French happens language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like you're not being you're not listening into the words necessarily yeah. if you don't speak the language so and and if anything it might be more fitting as a wallpaper movie because it's just so damn pretty everything sounds and looks beautiful you just don't want the end to play while you have a it, it is a little bit more attention grabbing you just want that yeah. middle section, I think. Right, well, it's definitely a magnetic aspect, but I, I like that idea still of, of wallpaper movies because it is you need that balance of something that's not going to take people away from what they're doing, but also is not just white noise that's <laughs> bothersome. Like you still want it to be pleasant. That would be a great feature for the site. Just get like a list of the wallpaper movies, and that could be a yeah. cool thing to put together. It'd be, it'd be an interesting thing. And again, like I said, I use lots of silent films, particularly comedies. I cycle a lot of uh, silent comedies for people, and it's always fun because they'll then they'll ask me a little bit about them. Yeah, yeah, it's an invitation to learn something more. I think. Yeah, so th those have been a huge success, and I and I intend to do more of those. Maybe I'll cycle this one in too sometime. Um, well, thanks for uh, putting up with the French film for a while. So Yeah, I, I knew that I had to eventually, otherwise you'd probably uh, kick me and find a new host who'd talk to you about French stuff. So probably I'm glad we true. found one that was that was uh, good, good for both of us. Uh, and, I, and I hope to find other French films that I really like, of course. It's, it's not that I don't like French films, it's just I don't watch non-American films a whole lot. Hopefully you find a second French film that you think is valuable. <laughs> Jesus. You know, this this week as well, I, I guess we skipped over my this week's section, but I watched Rafifi again, and then I learned, which I had not before, that Rafifi was actually made by a blacklisted Hollywood screenwriter, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's why it's my favorite French film. That makes sense. We still haven't gotten you to a French film that isn't influenced by Hollywood, which is more like the quality of tradition, but we'll get there one day. Yeah, you know, hit me up with some, and maybe we'll find something I did. It'll never happen. <laughs> 